my name is Michael Sullivan and I'm your host for today. Welcome to the next installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. The time is quarter past 12 here at Evolution HQ and we're heading into a very busy October. Everyone on the panel here has been extremely busy towards them this month so grateful that the guys could give up some vital time to, to contribute to this very important topic and today I'm joined by three very experienced engineering leaders to discuss the topic building resilience and psychological safety in engineering teams. So before we delve d- deeper into the topic, let's start off with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, your journey up to now, and what you're passionate about. Let's start with you, Jason. Hi, uh, Michael. Yeah, thanks very much for having us on today. I'm really excited by this. Um, so yeah, um, Jason McIntosh, I'm Chief Product Officer at uh, Tracer, which is a uh, a blockchain startup fully owned by De Beers, and um, it's uh, targeted on uh, using IoT, AI, and blockchain to trace diamonds from their origin and source at mine all the way to retail. Um, my background, but a bit of a serial career changer, um, started in, in um, sort of maths and quant world in finance, and then moved into trading and market making for a long time before uh, moving back to uh, technology in uh, a consultancy for, for a few years. Um, and then I joined uh, Tracer about four years ago. Um, in terms of outside it, um, do as we were saying a lot of a lot of things badly, um, but uh, generally love being outdoors. So skiing, tennis, and uh, walking a lot. Well, good stuff, Jason. And over to you, Kim Shem. Sure. Um, great, great to meet all of you. Um, so yeah, my name is Kim Shem. Um, I'm one of the co-founders and CTO of UniBuddy. And we're an ed tech startup uh, based in London, um, but um, helping students around the world to, to choose what to study and where to study. Um, so we work with um, around 600 universities, um, mostly in the US and the UK right now, um, who are our customers. And we've helped nearly 2 million students um, to make um, what I call the first most important decision in life, um, which is what do you do after school? And my background, um, yeah, studied electrical engineering, um, always loved coding, though, and um, moved to moved to London um, about seven years ago to study a master's in computer science, where I, where I met my co-founder um, as well. Things, um, th- things, things I like doing, um, yeah, love spending time in the outdoors, um, hiking, um, playing a lot of sport. I grew up playing a lot of sports, so i um, recently been playing a lot of tennis and golf in the summer. and. Um, yeah, in anything anything with a bat and a ball, um, I'm probably going to be pretty pretty interested in. Good stuff. Welcome, Commissioner. Looks like we've got a couple of tennis players on here, including myself, who was just explaining before that I'm not too great, but I'm actually getting addicted to it. So <laughs> over to you, Mark. Uh, hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm Mark. I'm a Chief Technology Officer at Doddle. Uh, so we are a software company. We provide uh, things like click and collect and returns portal software to uh, to carriers and retailers uh, uh, around the world. So we we use our software to make uh, to make that kind of click and collect experience and the fulfillment experience um, more profitable, sustainable, and a really delightful customer experience. Uh, in terms of my background, I started out my technical career at IBM, and worked there in uh, in public sector consulting for a number of years, and I had a bit of a Bit of a break to go and be a math teacher, you know, nice quiet time for a few years, and then back into technology. Um, I worked at the BBC driving uh, public cloud adoption there, and also worked in 
BBC Children, some things like um, mobile apps and games and stuff like that. Uh, then moved to Doddle, first year as technical architect, and then a couple of years ago, stepped up to be CTO. Um, outside of work, uh, kept very busy by family. I've got two sons. Uh, uh, we get out, we like doing walking and things like that. And myself, I've, uh, over the last few years, started um, taking learning the guitar um, a bit more seriously. I've played the guitar since I was 11, but if you'd heard me, you would never have thought that I played the guitar for that long. So um, I started taking lessons and uh, taking it a bit more seriously. It only took me about 30 years to have the to have the discipline to practice. So turns out that's the secret. Fantastic. Well, welcome, Mark, and 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 those two guys. So um, yeah, really excited to to get into this topic. Um, Obviously, with, with the, the level that you guys are at and um, the questions that we've got in mind, I think it's going to be an excellent topic with, with some really detailed conversation. So let's go into the first question. Um, if you would like to kick things off, Jason. Yeah, so um, I guess the question was, how do we know when we're getting it right? Um, and what are, what are the best indicators? Um, so, you know, we we can measure formally or we can measure informally and we can do a few different things to know if our teams are OK and how they're feeling. But I'm really interested. I've got a few views and, and I've kind of found my way clumsily to a couple of answers myself. But I'm really interested to know, you know, kind of what my colleagues uh, would use. Thanks, Jason. What are your thoughts, Commissioner? Yeah, sure. This is, this is something we've we've worked on quite a bit um, at Unibody, figuring out what are the the right things to measure or, or, or look at in a team. And you know, there's there's hundreds of different metrics and um, and indicators that you can look at. Um, for me, how do you know you're getting psychologically safe, psychological safety right? Um, you know, there is a tried and tested survey. Um, where you can measure it. So it's not something that's, you know, um, soft or just qualitative. Um, you can try to quantify it. And there's a survey by Amy Edmondson's organization, um, which is about 10 questions. And what we do, we send it out to our engineering team every quarter. Um, and I'm looking to roll it out in the company as well so that we start measuring this across the company. Um, and in that way, you should be able to see whether psychological safety is, is improving or changing or, or, or getting worse um, across your teams as well. So I'd say a leading indicator is that. And the lagging indicator that, you know, I, I feel is the most important is that psychological safety should really lead to, um, to really good performance um, and ideally a lead performance. So it's it's really you know are you actually achieving your business goal uh, or your team is meeting the key product metric that you you want them to focus on as well um, because psychologically safe teams should also perform really well um, assuming they have the right drive so I, I like to think of indicators as leading and lagging and i'd say yeah leading the psychological safety survey is really great and lagging is it should be your performance metrics what are your thoughts mark oh, i thought that was uh, a really Great answer, Kimishan. And uh, I would also put a big, uh, big tick in the box. Uh, recommend that people go and read um, the Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. It's a, uh, it's a great book, and there's a few bits in there that really make the the penny drop. So, um, and 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 I think that leads a lot to how we think about measuring psychological safety in our organization. So, early on in the book, there's a 
there's an example which really gets the the, the nub of what psychological safety is. It's you know the people feel that it's safe to speak up when they've got an idea, you know, when they've got uh, there's an improvement to make and that sort of thing. Um, you know, or, you know, do they feel it's risky to do so? Um, we like to hope that people feel that it's safe to raise points of improvement. And one of the one of the ways that we measure that is by looking at the uh, the output from team retrospectives. So lots of teams do retrospectives, and I think you've find quite a lot of teams that do retrospectives because they think they should. Or, um, but really, when you start measuring those retrospectives, looking at the number of actions that come out, are those actions then implemented? Is there some sort of uh, what, you know, what's the thing that's stopping teams from either raising things or or actually carrying out the things that they want to fix? Um, that can be really really illuminating. So, yeah, I think um, that's that's one tip from me. Other, other than all the things that that Kim Shan said, which are absolutely spot on. I think the survey by the Kim Shan's a great one. That's a great one to point out. Suppose, oh, th thanks for that, Mark. I suppose back to you, Jason. How how do you guys at Tracer know when you're getting it right, and and what are the best indicators? Yeah, so it's a, I mean, the reason I asked is kind of there's, there's a couple of things. So I think I, I totally agree the the other guys and, you know, you need a you definitely need the formal metrics. So no doubt. And we also we do pulse surveys every quarter as well. And um, you get some really useful feedback there. And, um, you know, as if you um, encourage kind of open commentary as well as sort of measurements, you'll get some really good feedback about what, you know, how people feel. And I think the only subtleties are sometimes, you know, some people feel more comfortable to do it anonymously and some people want to, um, you know, speak up with a name or, you know, in an open forum. Um, and you just got to be mindful of kind of people have different ways. They don't want to get messages across. But I think the other thing I want to say was, you know, there's also a feeling thing there as well. So, and it's a bit more maybe directed at people who maybe not the managers and can't run the survey. And how would they know if their colleagues are fine? For me, it's the, you know, it's kind of the absence of something when you know they're not fine. It's when they go silent is the really the biggest indicator. So if they're vocal about all kinds of things, positive, negative, you know that they're kind of okay because they're speaking up. Um, and it's it, it's kind of when they don't speak up. That's when you you really need to worry, and you need to kind of start start digging deeper and see how everyone is. Um, I totally agree with the other points, and 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 you know the the lagging indicator. Yeah, exactly. If it, if it's going well and things are flowing, you'll know you'll, you'll sort of feel it as well. Great stuff. Thanks for a very interesting opening question and answers there, guys. Moving on to your question, Kimishan. Yeah, sure. So I always find an interesting question that always comes up is, um, and perhaps it's. You know, Mark mentioned the definition of psychological safety, but psychological safety has become a really popular, perhaps buzzword now, and people, a lot of people don't know what it means and maybe interpret it as different things. But the question comes up is, uh, for me, is how do you ensure that people don't misinterpret psychological safety as being soft on performance? Um, because... It, it can feel like that in a way that for me to make a psychologically safe environment, I can't demand, you know, the bar, the performance bar have, have really high expectations. And that can lead to, to, to teams, organizations having high psychological safety, but, um, but, but really low, um, you know, levels of performance or people being in a comfort zone uh, because they misinterpret um, what psychological safety is. So my question is, how do we avoid that um, that misuse of it, um, and how do we know when a team is in a comfort zone, um, and, and and even though they high, have high psychological safety, they're not producing good performance? It's a 
yeah, Kim Michelle, I think it's a, a great question. The um, uh, you're asking when you shared that question, it reminded me of um, of Kim Scott's book about uh, radical candor and that quadrant that's all about like what she terms ruinous empathy, where there's so much empathy in being careful and tiptoeing around people that you feel like we're not actually driving forward to, to what we want to do. Um, and I think one of the other things I, I reflected on from that book is, it, is that that in itself, that's not actually being kind to people. That's not being, uh, it's not kind to people to not, not drive the organization forward and look for results. Because ultimately we either all win as a team or we don't. There's no middle ground where we've all had a, a nice time but the company hasn't achieved what it needed to achieve and it all works out well. So the, the big picture is obviously incredibly important and, and sharing that with the team and also listening to the team in terms of how they would go about uh, fixing those, you know, achieving what the company wants to achieve is very important too. And I think that's where, and I think, you know, what your question is driving at is the fact that actually psychological safety, the real definition of that, that people can speak up, and resilience, which is that people are able to hear that feedback and hear those comments and hear where things aren't good enough and hear where things that could be improved are the things that allow us to improve our teams. There's the, the point in uh, Amy Emerson's book where she found that the high-performing medical teams were raising twice as many problems as the low-performing medical teams. And so it's really that these are actually foundational to improving performance and, uh, and for us all to enjoy our jobs and also I would say that it's important to to separate the, the performance and the person there can be uh, and and have that have that compassion so um, there are very wonderful people who sometimes get caught in the wrong role and don't end up performing at the level that that, that we need them to or that they would like to and we're not doing anybody any favors by letting that carry on. So challenging those situations where people aren't able to perform or somebody stopping them from performing and helping those, either helping uh, performance improvements, either in teams or individuals, or for that matter, somebody who potentially isn't in the right place, moving into the right place is actually what we do to support people and respect them as people. Not There's not some sort of performance or comfort thing. It's, it's, it's you, you should have, you know, we need to have both. I think that's really interesting because I think I mean I'm really this question is really fascinating as well to me. Uh, I really like it, Kim because we looked at pressure a lot, especially in my last place it was at. We were we were always doing very demanding um, projects for the investment banks and lots of just external pressure as consultants. Um, but in my you've, you've interpreted it slightly differently because I was looking at it, thinking about the sort of more about the sort of pressure performance curve and and the sort of comfort levels. And I think you're coming at it, which is really interesting, more from an angle of like a you know, what about when someone's performance needs, you know, they need sort of performance coaching or, um, you know, they're not doing what they should. Um, I think more the, you know, as well about the, you know, there's a healthy level of challenge. So if you're kind of doing the SAS training, like they show on TV, you know, they're kind of shouting at you and they're taking you away into your discomfort zone in a way that's very uncomfortable and you can do for short periods, but you'll, you'll feel great at the end of it. I don't think that's appropriate, obviously in a work environment, but you, you want to be kind of stretching people to a way that they feel like, wow, I've achieved something I didn't actually know I was capable of. And then I think it's about doing that in a way which is, um, 
which is healthy and 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 really encouraging and supporting and positive and saying yeah i reckon you could do this you know and just kind of helping someone um realize that they can do something you know their capabilities are i only thought but what i would say is that when you push someone you know the kind of recognized theories if you push them away into discomfort zone you need to do it for kind of short period and then you need to let them rest a bit um if you if you if you put people under high pressure for long periods as we all know i'm sure as, as leaders you know they they collapse and if someone collapses and gets into you know uh, a bad or exhausted or or, or um you know a, a state where they feel like they're under a huge amount of stress uh, it's taken them a very long time to come back if they if indeed do they come back at all so i think that's um a, a practice that we can all work on as leaders what wait what do you think about that kibishan in terms of your your view on this yes i i like what you said about ruinous empathy i do think sometimes people misinterpret psychological safety and end up um you know going towards a ruinous empathy side and it's important to understand that you know psychological safety doesn't mean there's not going to be any healthy conflict in fact it's the opposite because if people feel they can speak out you are going to have healthy conflict um and that's how the issues come up and that's how you fix them and that's how you you move forward so uh, i i think sometimes and and maybe it alludes to 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 yours um um jason you mentioned you know silence is not a good thing um if 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 they silence and there's this kind of false calm or false peace um that doesn't mean you have psychological safety um it it could mean the opposite and um and 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 that could lead to performance issues as well but for me the key um the key component of this is drive as well so you know it, it you can have a team that's very psychologically safe but do they have the drive to achieve something and then i go back to you know daniel pink's motivators is their autonomy is their strong purpose um and is there a sense that they can master something um so it's it's important to to make sure your team's connected to the customer and they they care about the problem and they get up in the morning knowing what they're trying to do otherwise it doesn't matter if you have high levels of psychological safety um you know it, the, the the team will likely be in a comfort zone because they just don't have a, a strong motivation to to excel I have the magic card, but just come back to that if we can. Kipshan, it's really interesting what you said. Um, how you know? I've 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 had friends who've worked at uh, Bridgewater and are very familiar with that radical candor approach. You know, how do you sort of judge how much you can you, you can do? Because some people are quite uncomfortable with conflict, so you have to ease them into a sort of being able to kind of speak up. And how, how do you how do you judge that? Yeah. So first, one thing I've realized about that it's very cultural. Some cultures uh, cultures are naturally more direct than others. Yeah. So, so I think radical candor is different in different cultures by default, and uh, you know, some cultures might be more direct than others. But the key part about radical candor is it's not just about speaking directly, but it's also including that care component. Um, so you know um, what Mark mentioned about ruinous empathies where there's no directness or candor but it's only care um and in that way issues don't bubble up um so so i think if you balance out the the directness with enough care so people know why you're bringing it up and that you actually care about solving a problem or or making their lives easier then then you know people will be comfortable with with having um that healthy conflict um but if it's if it's just directness and there's and it's missing that care component then people will feel attacked or it won't feel comfortable um as well but but 
but I think ultimately it's 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 how you build this in your team and and you calibrate based on the the directness and the and the level of culture that you're trying to build and you can increase this over time as people get more and more comfortable with it as well. Yeah, I mean it's definitely it's definitely something I've had to work on because you know working in a trading environment as you can imagine it's quite it's quite robust and it was actually very healthy in a way in the sense that everything would come out every during the day everyone would scream at each other shout all kinds of crazy stuff you know um but at the end of the day five o'clock the air was totally cleared you'd go down to the pub and everyone would feel great we'd be best friends but so that was an extreme but then i think coming into technology i've had to really kind of obviously learn how to just how to dial that down and and uh, and get it right for a completely different context where obviously there's a lot more a uh, lot more of a sensitive environment um it's really, really useful input. Yeah. Yes. Do you do you find that there's also a because I'm assuming that on a trading floor you were always in person and stood next to the you know you could see face to face and and perhaps if you had strong words then you you'd have five minutes making a cup of tea afterwards side by side with somebody as well so some like a chance to reset in person. Do you think there's a difference now? So many people are working remotely. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, you definitely need to handle things differently. I mean, of course, because you don't know, let's say, you know, come back to the empathy bit, you don't know, you can't see if someone's gone off and they've fallen apart or they or they feel fine. Um, so I do find that very tricky. I mean, yeah, I mean, how do you how do you handle that, Mark? Well, I think it's, so my my team are, are all remote and um, we've, you know, we've struggled. You can, you can clearly tell the difference with, uh, it's hard to say actually how much People have been affected by you know something like there being a global pandemic in general, but also the fact that we're we're remote. So, uh, but we've tried different things. So, um, and so for example, we uh, we decided to schedule in the office week where everybody would travel, work in work in the office for as much of a week as possible, and, and just do a normal week. We were getting together for planning events. We were getting together for you know things like the Christmas party, but actually getting together just to do normal day-to-day -day work was something we hadn't done in months so we tried that and again it's always um you know we we want to learn as much out of that as possible um and it, it proved a, a partial success i think um but also i think we we are talking more and more in our teams about uh i think we're becoming better at talking about the vocabulary of working remotely if that makes sense like it's not just the same as in the office but remote so a colleague of mine um for example shared that they when they turn their camera off on a call sometimes that means they're feeling stressed and that will be their response and so that was great to hear on many levels not least the fact that that person felt that they could say that to us and you know say so what i'm and and then they also said you know what you can do to help at that point is just ping me afterwards, ping me on Slack to say, uh, how's it? if you notice me turn my camera off, that might mean that. Ping me a message and I'd appreciate it. And so it shows, I think, that we are building up more trust and more understanding of working in that environment. And we've all like we've all talked about different books that you know, there is. There's, you know, the Psychological Safety book, Amy Edmondson's one, there's Radical Can. There's no book right now on working remotely post a global pandemic. Um, I don't know if the or if you want to get together right now, we'll quit our jobs and go and try and write that book. But um, it's um, but there's no book to go and look to and try and get guidance from at the moment. There's so we have to. I think all of our teams are trying to work our way through, and I think that's where um, hopefully trying to build a, a culture of psychological safety 
means that we can call out the things that are painful about working remotely and we can call out the problems. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you, Jason, I think we're doing a good job of it. I think we're doing our best. We're trying to learn as we go. Um, but, there, but there are clearly problems that happen that are much worse or, you know, smaller problems appear to be much bigger problems when we're all remote. And I don't think we've got to the bottom of dealing with that. I think that thing about pinging people is, is really important. We do that, a lot of that. So after the meeting, just say, if you just notice something, you know, hi, are you okay? We do an awful lot, trying to kind of just chat to each other all across the team, you know, just, just checking in on each other, having having chats after the chats, you know, if you if you sense something. So you just have to put that much more time into, you know, in the sort of pastoral care between all of you. Yeah, great. So guys, really interesting thoughts there. Um, moving on to your question, Mark. Bit of background on my question. I, I was in the car listening to the James O'Brien podcast and he was talking to Johnny Vaughan. And uh, Johnny Vaughan was talking about his career and he was particularly talking about his dad. And he was saying his dad was an engineer and when he'd get a new car, lovely car, he wouldn't be enjoying his car, he'd be listening for the rattle. And and that he felt that that was an engineer's mindset, that sometimes, you know, you, you're not enjoying the ride, you're listening you're listening for the rattle. And and then I reflected on that and thought, well, that's a thing that we find valuable in lots of engineers, isn't it? So great engineers will think about what's going to go wrong. They will anticipate problems. They will build that thinking into, into their work and to think about the failure scenarios of components and systems and stuff like that. And that's great. But the question I have for you guys is, do you think that that kind of engineer's mindset might lead to maybe over anticipation of problems uh does that make people less resilient does that make people more likely to feel to get into a, a stress situation um yeah what, what do you think i i think this is a really like all the questions i think this is a really interesting question i'm not sure i've got a great answer but um it made me think some things so maybe we'll just study the things that was it made me think about which was um like there's a there's a, there's a and i can't remember i'm not so good at quoting the sources you guys but there's there was a really good article about how um the more we've digitized the world, the more we're actually focusing on a particular kind of thinking. And it's the kind of mathematicians thinking or the engineers thinking or the computer scientists thinking, which is a very, very structured, logical way of thinking. And that focuses a particular part of the brain, a particular types of skills and creates a filter to everything you see through the eyes of structure and process. So I think it's is definitely having some effect. And I think that's why and it's a bit like my first question as well, actually, it was slightly related to like, we should get sometimes deliberately get ourselves into a feeling world and a creative world and a sort of spiritual, soulful way of thinking to see how we feel about things rather than just sort of structuring a process to solve them always. Although it's useful to have a process as well. Um, I haven't particularly observed it's like um, someone has sort of analyzed and calculated themselves into a feeling worse than it would otherwise but i sort of suspect it might be true in some cases or certainly on the adaptability thing like and a, a you know you do definitely notice some people who who find change fast change uh very disturbing and that's maybe because they used to kind of liking and enjoying logical certainty around things so i'm not sure if that answered but that's kind of the best i can come up with mark no that was no that was, that was good just that i it's good to know that I'm just not completely off on one if I'm, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> so what, what about you, Kimishan? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Also had a couple of thoughts that came to mind. So one, I would say it's generally a good thing when you're looking at risk 
and trying to figure out how we can prevent um, things from going wrong. Um, I think that's actually quite a positive mindset to have. Um, let's, you know, let's let's put measures into place. Let's think about how it can go wrong and let's take action. Um, so, so I think that's actually builds resilience. But on the other hand, I would say, you know, we're never going to be able to prevent anything from going wrong um, or everything from going wrong. And we need to be able to react to the times when things do go wrong. And, you know, for, 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 for engineers, for example, um, there will always be a time when your systems go down. And that's why the focus today is more on metrics like mean time to restore, right? It's, it's how quickly can you actually respond and fix an incident versus trying to prevent it ever from happening. Um, and I think it's important, it's important to have that mindset and actually saying that, okay, we're never going to think of everything and we're never going to prevent everything from going wrong, but let's have really great observability and let's be really confident that we can react to a situation when it comes up. And that's how you, and that builds resilience. Um, and that, in a sense, it trains people to deal with uncertainty or to be okay with, with uncertainty that's coming up. Um, as well. And, and I really like the mean time to restore metric much better than availability in that sense. Um, because, you know, no, nobody has 100% availability. You know, the big tech companies spend billions on it and they still go down um, as well. So I, I think being able to solve problems on your feet and be confident as a team that you're going to deal with it is, is, is really, really critical. And that's how you build resilience. I think that's a really good point. It's like that's the definition of confidence, isn't it? Not that things won't go wrong, but yep, things will go wrong, but it's okay. It's okay yeah. when they do. And you'll and, and that's the thing about safety as well, isn't it? You'll get if you mess up, that'll be okay because you know, we'll sort it. Yeah. That's a it's a really important thing. What are your thoughts? Thoughts on that, Mark? No, I think it's really helpful to to hear the thoughts of 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 the folks here. Uh, I think like I say, it's a thought that came into my head just when I was listening to a podcast. I've done a little bit of reading around it. There was a study done at a university, which wasn't a very big study, I don't think, that suggested that there was an engineering population of engineering students had a higher uh, higher number of um, uh, like mental health uh, incidents over a certain period of time and this, that and the other. But I don't think there's any cut and dried um, evidence that suggests there's any big difference between the between engineers and other other professions let's say um there was i, I think that there's some things that and i think uh Kimishan, some of the things you've described there are absolutely bang on in terms of um helping provide resilience to a team and confidence to a team like jason that word confidence is exactly right um i think if things aren't right in an organization then probably for very good reasons engineers will feel that non-engineering folks don't understand the complexity of their job and maybe don't appreciate always the the complexity that they're dealing with and the fact that things can and will go wrong so being very proactive about that as an organization talking about what's going to go wrong looking at some metrics to show that actually you know what we're pretty good there's i think there's often um if we're not careful we can have a bit of a bit of breathless panic when, some, when something does go wrong, when there is an outage, rather than dropping into a plan. And, um, you know, there's that saying, isn't it? What is it? You know, competence is the antidote to fear in that in that situation. I, do you have your plans in place? Do you have your monitoring in place? Do you have your, you know, 
your responses and your operational awareness where you know something's if something goes wrong you can deal with it um and uh so i think those metrics you described uh Kimishan, could be uh you know absolutely spot on um i think uh i also wonder sometimes whether in engineering teams because people tend people i guess uh, are perhaps more biased towards being more analytical thinkers whether we just do less of talking about emotions and our own insecurities and vulnerabilities than than maybe other other I, I don't know but I've never worked in a marketing team but I I have this uh, that perhaps this um uh maybe you know I, I have this assumption that perhaps there's more there's more engagement with the human emotion than there would be in an engineering team and maybe that's actually just more healthy um so I don't know but it's a uh, uh, but I really appreciate your thoughts on it. it was a, one, of, uh, one of the things I really like um, with my teams, they've, well, they've organised themselves, and I really respect it, is icebreakers on at the beginning of a lot of the meetings. And um, they started, I think it's really healthy because we're all this sort of scientific mindset. It's a really good one to just nudge us out because otherwise you can get in the sort of channel. And um, I think in terms of just mental health and feeling good in your day, those kind of things are really helpful just to provide a kind of um, circuit breaker. Yeah. Great stuff. Again, really interesting question and answers there, guys. We've uh, got a question from Dan McNeil, who, who's been on the podcast before. Um, so he, he can't join us today. He's in between jobs, um, but he has um, still wanted to go ahead with his question. Um, so his question is, how does a leader strike the balance between showing vulnerability to the team and being an inspira inspiring and, and motivating leader? So would you like to kick things off with that one, Jason? Um, yeah, I don't see the like. If I'm honest, I don't see those things as really in conflict because I think as uh, I'm not going to quote the book. I read a great book on leadership, but this, um, you know, there, there are times when it's very, very healthy to express a lot of vulnerability and just say, "Guys, I just don't know the answer. I just don't know if it'll be okay." And 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 it comes back to the sort of radical candor thing. But I and you know, but so if if you're in a sticky spot, you might um expose a lot more vulnerability and say guys what shall we do and there's certain decisions where it's an us thing and you admit there's a risk and there's a consequential decision to be made and you have to judge if that's right if this is a team one where we all have to decide together we're in it together we're deciding what to do and that can be quite vulnerable there's another one we can say i just don't know but listen i'm going to make the call because i feel that i need to make i need to sort of wear the responsibility of this and just just trust me to make the best judgment i can so i think those kind of things are you know, are really are really healthy, um, and they and I think they're good leadership practice. But I think is not healthy. Sort of like I don't have a clue, and I don't know, and and I and I don't even know who should make the decision of what we're going to do. If you just sort of get a flap, obviously that's not going to be great, or or display some like just hopeless emotion. Um, maybe that's not the best thing to do. But you think even with that, you know, you could lean on a trusted person saying, "I'm feeling pretty pretty rough at the moment, and I'm and I'm I'm feeling bad," you know. Um, can you help me? Because I think even leaders should be able to reach out to those around them and uh, express some vulnerability because that will also encourage others to speak up as well. What are your thoughts, Commissioner? Yes, I totally agree with Jason. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive um, and that you can't be vulnerable um, to be inspiring and motivating. Um, however, I see how they can be in conflict in certain situations. Um, from experience, what I found is that people want to see leaders being um, very, um, very assured when it comes to the when it comes to the comes to the highest level and the vision. So if you're kind of wavering on the vision um, every day or you're not sure about that, I don't think it gives people too much of confidence. 
Um, so I, I think you should be, you know, really, um, really assertive on the vision. But when it comes to the details and the smaller things, that's where, you know, it's fine to be vulnerable as a leader um, in terms of, you know, things that you might, yeah, you know, we might, you might, you might make a couple of mistakes in the in implementation detail um, or on the day to day. Um, but, you know, when people join a company, a lot of the time they join it for the vision. And if that is changing every quarter or every month, um, people can start to lose confidence in the leadership because then it looks like, you know, you don't know what you're doing or, you know, maybe looking at the government, for example, recently, um, when you when you set a strategy and then you reverse it and then you, you keep changing leadership, you know, that doesn't give confidence to people. So. I do think at, at the top, at the highest level, um, people want to see a lot of conviction and certainty um, in the vision so that they can get behind you to achieve it um, as well. Yeah, I, I agree with, with both of you. I think uh, it's uh, it's not an awe. And, um, and really, I guess it kind of also means what we mean by vulnerability. Um, I don't think you can opt out of the fact that we all work in complex and uncertain environments and uh, and I don't think it's a weakness to express the fact that you don't always know what the outcomes are going to be of what you're going to try and do. Um, most importantly, I, I, I don't, no one in my team also works in a environment that's completely certain of outcomes either. So I mean, to pretend that I do would be ridiculous. Um, I think I think Kimishan, you're right about the, the vision. I think we often talk about instead of trying to be have certainty, we can have clarity. So clarity of vision, clarity around what we're gonna do or what we're not gonna do if something goes wrong. Uh, and that sort of thing, there's then you know, clarity around the culture. How are we gonna react? Are we gonna start screaming and shouting if something goes wrong if we have an outage on an api in 20 minutes time am i going to be jumping up and down screaming and shouting or am i going to be working trying to work with the team to get the information to try and sort it out uh, and that i think providing that clarity is important but certainly we can't pretend to provide any certainty because ultimately if we had certainty our jobs would be trivially easy anyway it's just a myth that we have that stuff guys really interesting comments and, and questions on this podcast so obviously a, a very important topic does anything does anyone have anything final to add or any any other questions for each other i just wanted to say how much i've enjoyed chatting to uh, jason and kimishan it's been really really interesting to listen to uh, what you've had to say i was surprised michael when you said that you felt this was a an unusual topic for the podcast uh, or like and because i feel like you know this this is definitely the way that uh I, I i think i probably spend more of my time thinking about this sort of stuff than i do uh software problems these days um uh, so it's been really good to um you know, really good to to talk about it and i think it's really healthy to have these conversations yeah, totally agree. Really enjoyed the comments. And, uh, you know, I remember when I went into management, uh, my brother, he sort of preceded me saying, you know, it'll be 80% people. And it, it totally is. It's 80% people and, and like 20%, as we say, the the actual technology and the actual uh, stuff to have to say. So, yeah, I really want to thank everyone. Thanks, Michael, for letting us come on. Pleasure, guys. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. And, um, yeah, 
again absolutely important topic really really interesting comments and questions again if you are listening as a cto head of engineering engineering manager or product manager um please get in touch on michael.sullivan at evolution-contract.co.uk to be on a future podcast and we'll, we'll see you all soon thanks michael